Good evening. You're on with Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. My name is Attorney Vincent Davis, and we represent people in divorce and family law matters throughout the state of California. Today, we're going to have a, well, I won't say a special guest, but one of our reoccurring attorneys, uh, Slavia Anlikova, who's going to be joining us later on this evening and talking about parental alienation. Uh, that may be a term that you may have heard or you may not have heard before, but it always or seems to raise its ugly head in family law, in certain family law cases um, uh, that we handle. And that parental alienation is loosely defined as a mental or psychological disorder where one parent is trying to turn the child or the children against the other parent. Now, I'm going to get right into a call here um, because we have a few calls here before we go on to some tips and tricks for family law cases. Good evening. Uh, you're on with Attorney Vincent Davis. Hello? Okay, perhaps that person isn't there. Well, getting back to uh, parental alienation, um, I'd like to share a couple of stories about parental alienation. Um, and some of you callers and listeners may have been through this yourselves, or you may know someone that is experiencing this problem. Here is one case of parental alienation that I was involved in. I have actually represented people who have been accused of parental uh, parental alienation, and I have been uh, I have represented people who have been the victims of parental alienation. Give me a second, and I'm going to bring Slavea on the line with us. Slavea, are you there? I am. Hello. Hi. How are you? Doing well. How about yourself? I don't know if we have a very good connection this evening. We seem to be having some technical difficulties with our internet. Can you hear me okay? I can. Um, are you able to hear me? I can't hear you. You are a little choppy. Well, let me try to anyway. in again then. Hopefully that's okay. the issue with us. Okay, thank you. I'll be right back. Okay. Anyway, so in one of these cases that comes to mind, I represented a woman who was um, accused of uh, alienating uh, two or three children that the couple had against the father. Um, and in that case, there were psychological evaluations um, handled by both the uh, both the mother. Uh, for herself, and of course, uh, for the father, um, he had a psychological evaluation. And then, and then there was a court-appointed evaluator. Um, uh, we had a very long trial, and after all of the facts were in, the judge had decided that the uh, mother had taken action and had um, tried to alienate the children against the father. 
But the interesting thing was that the judge also found that the father was not fit to be the custodial parent um, for the child and uh, or for the children and ended up giving the children to the paternal grandparents. Um, and that was a very interesting case. Now, I've rep I'm representing a couple people right now in different cases where um, the well, one parent in both of the cases, it's the mother, uh, is trying to alienate the children from the father. Uh, and it's it's one of those types of things where, um, in one case, uh, the children, you know, act as if they don't like their father when they're around the mother. But when they get alone with the father, there's no problems whatsoever. Um, and then in another case, where the father had a great relationship with the children, and I know this because I've seen pictures, I've seen DVD video of him interacting with his children. And when the um, the couple broke up, uh, the mother, who was uh, very angry at the father because he allegedly had an extramarital affair, uh, did everything that she could to turn the children against the father and then made allegations that the father was uh, physically abusing the children. And uh, to this day, the children... Um, don't want to see or even talk to their father. Now, children don't learn that um, by themselves, and unfortunately, uh, we think that the mother has has told the children, you know, what to do and what to say. I'm going to take a call right now from area code eight three two, ending in eight nine. Hello, you're on with Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. Hello. Hello. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? I'm sorry. Yes, I'm talking to you. How are you this evening? I'm fine. Uh, I have a quick question regarding uh, divorce. Uh, my daughter is currently in uh, California, but is a resident of Texas. Uh, she is uh, married and wanting to file divorce but has a question in regards to um, also custody regarding her small child. Uh, about a year ago, um, her child was uh, taken from uh, by CPS, and now in the, the, she's in the reunification process where she has the baby. Her case is just about uh, getting ready to close in about a month. Her question is: Is can should she wait until that case is completely closed to file for divorce and ask for um, managing conservatorship over the child in Texas, or should she file in California? Hello. 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 I'm, I'm back on yes. the line. Sorry, we had some technical difficulties. Who am I talking to? 
uh, Maida. Okay, and did you want to ask us a question or share an experience with us? Uh, I wanted to ask a question regarding divorce. Go ahead and ask your question. Uh, my daughter is uh, currently in California, but is a resident of Texas. Uh, she wants to file for divorce, but has, currently has a CPS case open uh, where now she's in the reunification process where her case is going to be closed in about a month or so. Uh, what her question was is should she wait until that CPS case is closed to file for divorce and should she file in California or should, would it be quicker in California or would it be, or should she file in Texas since she's a resident of Texas? Okay, so I um, unfortunately am not licensed to practice law in Texas, so I can only mm -hmm. tell you about California law. Okay. And, and, to uh, your, and to answer your question about whether she should file um, uh, for divorce now before the case ends, uh, you know, there's a lot of different factors involved in making that determination. I can tell you that she can file for divorce now even though the CPS case is still open. But, you know, whether she should do that or not, that's one thing. And whether she should do it in uh, California or Texas, that's a whole other can of worms that I can't even answer because I'm not a Texas lawyer. Mm -hmm. What she's afraid of is, is if she falls in California that he's come back and asks for alimony. Is she the higher income earner? Yes. Okay. Uh, and since, you know, we don't know her name and we don't know your name, tell me what the differences in the income are. Well, I mean, uh, he has a minimum paying job. She's in the service, so she gets a little bit more money than he does. But he's in well, Texas. They've been, they've been separated over a year. Well, if and he's he in not, Texas... Go ahead. Uh, and he doesn't even, uh, he didn't even follow through with the orders regarding CPS. If he's in Texas, well, if he's in, Cali in Texas and she's in Texas, why was she thinking about filing in California? She currently lives in California. Okay. Because you said that she was a resident of Texas. But right. Well, living she's... She she is she is uh, in the service. She is not a she has not established her residency in California. So technically, she's still a resident of Texas. How long has she been living in California? About a year, about a year and a half, okay. maybe. Well, if she wanted to file for divorce in California, she could. She's lived here long enough to do that. Okay. Where is she going so to be she, in the next? In the next six in months. In the next she in the next six months she's scheduled to leave to Virginia. I see. Is she going to be stationed in Virginia? Uh, for maybe two months, and then depending where they send her after that. I see. Well, she's got to uh, talk to someone about the possibilities of filing now, filing later, and then, you know, 
does she know where she's going to be later? Uh, no, they have not uh, told her. And what she wants to do is she wants to file full custody and have give him only visitation rights. That's why she's unsure as to where she should file. Well, if she has a CPS case that's going to be closing uh, in California, the California judge is going to have to make what they refer to sometimes as a closing family law order, which will determine mm-hmm. custody and visitation between the parents. Okay. So, I mean, if she was thinking that that was going to happen in the divorce, uh, it's probably not because the, the juvenile judge is going to make that determination um, before she even looks like files for the divorce or certainly before the divorce is going to be finalized. If she were going oh, to file I see. a case, right, if she were even going to file a case for the divorce right now, she can't bring up custody and, and visitation issues in the divorce because the juvenile judge has sole uh, jurisdiction over those children, um, for the time being at least, until the case is closed. Right. And that's why she I had file. told her that I thought it would be best if the CPS case closed and then filed for divorce because it depended on what the CPS, because the, technically the court's custody of her, of the child right now. I mean, as far as, even though she's with my daughter, she's still in the court system as, as where they have custody of her. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the other thing is she could file for divorce now and get all other issues started going like child support, spousal support, um, division of property, division of debts, that type of thing. So you can always mm-hmm. file for divorce and start that. And when the court issues its, um, juvenile court issues the, the custody order, That'll be a final order for the um, for the family law court. Okay. And when you say spousal support, what does that mean? That's what a lot of people call alimony. Towards so him or talk, towards her? Well, it would depend. It would depend on the differences between their income. Mm-hmm. It depends on okay. who the higher income earner is and how much money is the difference between the higher income. So let me give you an example. If the if one parent earns $2,500 and the other parent earns $3,000, there will probably not be alimony or spousal support paid in that case. Even though one's a little higher, you know, the other person is still working and making a living. Typically where you mm-hmm. see in and spousal support and alimony become significant is, you know, you have one uh, parent or one, you know, one party, the husband or the wife, making, you know, $20,000 a month, and the other party is only making $5,000 a month. So the, mm-hmm. typically in that situation, if they get divorced, the $20,000 a month person is going to be paying spousal support to the $5,000 a month person, Um so, you know, it, it, it it's really, you know, up to her whether she wants to wait or not. I see. Okay. All right. Well, then I think that uh, answers our question then. Okay. And next Wednesday at uh, 7 uh, p.m., if she wants to call in and ask me more specific questions, tell her she's free to do so. Great. 
I will let Thank her know that. Calling. Thank you. Right, bye bye. Okay, we're going to take another call right now. Um, it's going to be area code uh, 626 ending in 84. Hello, you're on with attorney Vincent Davis, Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. Who am I speaking Hello, to? Mr. Davis. Hi, um, Mr. Davis. This is Annie. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm calling um, to thank you, first of all, for show. We really appreciate it. Um, and I wanted to share a little bit about my experience. Sure. I uh, I left DCFS um, court with my uh, seven-year-old son having no custody. I had to give full custody to the father, and I had monitored visits on Fridays and Sundays. Now, leaving that court, um, I thought would be the best option, because family law, I thought, would be easier for me to gain more time and, and eventually custody of him. But um, what happened is that I immediately after they terminated jurisdiction, DCFS, um, my child's father had the power to not let me see my child because he had full custody. So I did not see my son for three months until I was able to get into family law. When I went into family law, um, the judge was unsympathetic to the situation where I did not see my son for three months. I got reconvicted for the same allegations that DCFS already had convicted me of prior, um, and my visitation was left monitored visits, same monitored visits, and um, I just got awarded attorney fees, which he still has not paid. Now, I did get reunification therapy granted, so we immediately started reunification therapy because we were going to go back into court and gain some custody after that. When we finished reunification therapy, the judge was uh, getting married and she was going to be gone for about a month on her honeymoon. So um, we had to reschedule that court date. So that put us into November of 2015. And unfortunately, during this big gap of time where we finished reunification therapy and I'm supposed to gain custody, um, the father of my child got arrested for felony domestic violence against me and against my one-year-old daughter that I have with a different relationship. And during his arrest, um, when he was in jail, uh, I was granted an EPO, an emergency protective order. So I had my son solely in my care for five days, which was very refreshing because I hadn't had him for such a long time. And during this time, DCFS was also called um, as, a, I guess, protocol. The police involved them. And so a social worker did come into my house and left him in my care, knowing he was in my full-time care. Um, following um, the EPO that was going to expire, I went into family law to file for a restraining order against him. Um, and when I went to the restraining order room that's designated in the downtown courthouse, filing it, the judge, it was a female, I believe she's a commissioner, I forgot her name, she did not believe the story. Um, she said that she felt that this is a ploy for me to gain custody. She would not grant the restraining order um, for my kids or for me, she told me that she wanted me to give um, notice to the father that I'm filing this, which is 
not normal procedure from what I've heard. Is that normal procedure? No, not really at all. Yes. So I had to give notice to the father and his attorney that I'm even filing a restraining order against him. So they showed up to court the next day, and um, basically she uh, told me that I have to return the child to the father and I have to um, get a restraining order only for me. But what she did was she gave a mutual no-contact order, mutual, for me and for him. When he's out on bail for $50,000 felony domestic, she's giving a mutual no-contact order, restraining order just for me. It was a joke of an experience. So I, of course, was very upset, and I went into um, uh, a battered women's shelter because the police advised me to. I informed them that I feel uncomfortable releasing my child to him. I went into a battered women's shelter. During that time, I found someone who was willing to take me back into court um, a few days later because at this point, I'm in contempt of court for about three, four days I'm in contempt because I did not return my child. I went back into court, and, of course, our our judge is still on vacation. So the head family law um, judge in downtown Los Angeles, she's on the second floor, I believe. She's the head family law judge. It's a huge courtroom. She, uh, again, I got reconvicted for the DCFS this allegations. That's all she focused on. And even though the previous judge had lifted my monitor visit, she put the monitor back on me. She did not believe that the case against the my child's father is real. And I had no evidence except to prove that he's out on bail. So I was in the same predicament um, that I was nine months earlier. And here I am today, after all of this, um, the city attorney is full force prosecuting him um, for three counts of domestic violence. One is battery and criminal um, threats. They're asking for jail time, and they're ready to take it to trial. So he is getting prosecuted in that manner, and I still don't have custody of my son. I have monitored visits. So I was punished for being in contempt and not, he, and not returning my son for four, three, four days when he's out on bail and still has full custody of my child. And it's unheard of from whoever I ask. Do you feel that way too? Yeah, that's a very, very odd factual circumstance that you told me about. Um, he... You know, I don't know what to say about that. Did they file a a contempt about you, against you? No, they have not filed a contempt. And um, if they do, I have a contempt against him because I I have 42 missed visits. And I also have a $5,000 attorney fee judgment that he has not paid. So I have a very um, strong contempt against him. So if he filed a contempt against me for the three, four days of keeping my child... Of course, I would backfire with that. So that's why I believe that he's not doing that. I do have a criminal protective order. I did have that when I walked into court. When our judge was back from vacation, I showed her the criminal protective order. Again, his attorneys, he has very good good attorneys that were able to convince the judge that the criminal case is wobbly against him and um, 
and it's going to drop. And she believed, again, that side. And, and I have to wait until the end of this month to go back into court to file for, um, to, to have the trial for my restraining order that I had originally filed, basically. When is that going to happen? Um, February 29th, the last day of this month. And even though I have a criminal protective order, um, I'm still being forced to go through and jump through every single hoop that they throw at me. And it's just corrupt and unfair. And um, I have to put on a full-blown trial in family law um, for the restraining order and have all the witnesses come and testify. So once I get that granted, you know, he won't be able to have custody according to the family law um, code. But I have a criminal protective order that supersedes all of that, that is, I feel, being ignored and put on the back burner because I'm, I was reconvicted again for the second time in family law for the DCFS case. You know, I bet what's going to happen is they're going to use the family law case as a practice run against all of your witnesses in his, you know, for his criminal case. I believe so, too, and I predicted that as well. So it leaves me in a predicament where I don't know what to do. Do I just go in and, because the family law judge said, whatever happens in the criminal court, we're proceeding in family law. So she's not, no longer going to let that stop her from making a judgment with custody. And that's what I'm afraid of. Do I go ahead and do that? Basically, I'm giving them the ammo that they want. But the case is simple. And the witnesses, you know, it, it's two sentences of what they've witnessed or saw or heard. It's nothing complicated. But again, I don't know what the right decision is. When you go forward with your restraining order case, do you think that the uh, the father is going to testify? I don't know. If he pleads the fifth, um, I don't know. If he pleads the fifth, he loses his restraining order. I'll get it granted, and then he loses custody. But then they use that, the whole thing, in criminal court. Like you said, it's a test run, and they'll, they'll take the criminal to to trial, I feel like, and use that. So what do I do to stop him from from um, kind of benefiting from what he's done? Realistically, I don't think that you can stop him from getting a practice run against your witnesses. You have to call your witnesses. They have to be put on the stand and they have to testify, and then they get to be subject to cross-examination to, you know, by his attorneys. And I bet that probably his criminal attorney will come in and, uh, you know, cross-examine you and your witnesses. But you're right. If he gets on the stand and pleads the fifth, um, you know, you'll probably win, and you'll get... You get your restraining order, and you should then be moving towards getting custody of your son back. And the tables will have turned, and he probably will have monitored visitation. The, you know, the usually DAs, and you know, I, I shouldn't say this, but a lot of times in these types of cases, they don't 
I get the feeling, and maybe I'm wrong, that sometimes they don't take these seriously, but you are telling me that they're really prosecuting him and they want jail time against him. Is that correct? 20 days in jail. I and see. they're ready to take it to trial. The, the, um, the city attorney, they've already uh, interviewed all of the witnesses with his attorney present. So they already got the statements from all of the witnesses and they already have the evidence and they're moving forward full force. Unfortunately, family law and uh, three different judges did nothing. Three different judges basically dismissed it, the domestic violence, as a ploy for custody when there's a long history of domestic violence between him and I. Um, I just, it's unfortunate and it's sad for other families and women in the same situation or similar situation that end up getting killed or damaged or really hurt them and their children because the judge is not taking it seriously. Now, how did you have three different family law judges? Well, I, I had the commissioner in the um, restraining order hearing room. I believe it was on the second floor. It's the room that's only for restraining orders. So she didn't believe it, and that's why she told me she wanted me to give them notice. The second judge was um, the head family law judge. I believe her... her um, courtroom was on the second floor too um it was the big courtroom and because my judge was on vacation she didn't believe it and she actually put the monitor back on my visit and did nothing to him even though at that time i did not have the criminal protective order but i did have his bail um so i did have evidence she just cared about the dcfs and focused on that and reconvicted me um, and then when our judge finally came back from vacation and we resumed our um, original court date that we had, um, she did nothing. She saw I had a criminal protective order. She left the monitor on my visits knowing I have a criminal protective order. He's out on a $50,000 bond. Um, they're just completely just not looking at what's in front of them. It's just hard to digest or accept. So... I'm in a predicament where either I'm not going to move forward on the restraining order on the 28th so that he doesn't get to have a trial run, like you said, and maybe with the criminal protective order try to get the custody in that way. I don't want to give them any more, um, you know, just I want, to, I want to stop them from trying to be, trying to be smarter than the system. Okay, well, Annie, we wish you luck, and thank you for calling in to our show and sharing your experience. Thank you very much, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I'm going to take another call right now. Hello, you're on with Attorney Vincent Davis, Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you? Um, I'm okay. I don't really have... And I'm doing it. I gave you an email. I'm in California. Okay. And um, did you have a question or did you want to uh, share a story with us? Um, just a brief story. I don't really have um, a divorce situation. I just have a nightmare story with the Los Angeles Department Child and Family Services. I got my son back a year ago, 
when he's still a minor. Uh, he almost aged out of the system. 17 months of completely monitored visits. I never got liberalized visits. Um, numerous times I was kept from my son for spans of 40 to 50 days. Um, he lived right around the corner from me. It, it, it's just he's traumatized still. We're, we're just still dealing with it. I, I absolutely want to, for him, um, file a, a lawsuit. I don't even know where to begin. Um, after I got rid of my, I finally was able to, I contested, of course, numerous times their decision. And once I contested it, they still fought me. And I, I did win. Um, but once I got rid of my social worker and got a new one, it was a whole new world. Um, she came on board and, and just saw a whole different light. That I think I think my case, I think the um, social worker absolutely was, had a personal agenda with me, if you will, and was in um, collaboration, corroboration with the department. And um, we never did receive a reunification plan. We were split between two different counties, so there was a lot of issues with that. But that shouldn't have been an issue. It should have just been taken care of. Um, just ineptness and just absolute cruel um, treatment, as far as I'm concerned. A uh, social worker never even really knew my child's name properly. <laughs> Very, very odd situation. Um, as far as I know, this particular department in the county that it is are being sued by the state for selling babies. You might be aware of that. Are you aware of that? No, I wasn't. I had heard rumors of an investigation. But do you right. know if there is I a lawsuit? Do you know if there's a lawsuit going on? I hope so. <laughs> um, I know there's an investigation, and they've got a real scathing picture of a of a party with the um, with the social worker's supervisor. Um, that's you know hit hit the headlines out here anyway. It's scathing because it's just like he's in a toga outfit in <laughs> in the department itself at a party in a toga outfit, and he's a family therapist also as well. So just you know it's just like inappropriateness. Um, kind of caught in the act. It doesn't look good, but, you know, that, that just because he's in a toga doesn't mean he's, uh, you know, selling babies. But um, they call it here, you know, cash for kids. I don't know where it, other places in the country it's called that, but here it's just a thriving business. And um, I have every intention. I hope that I can, and maybe you can guide me, find, um, because I need I need it for my child to be able to resolve issues, is that if we... Um, not necessarily get any compensation, but some kind of mm, just satisfaction in knowing that you know it's it's doing us a disservice and doing my you know doing my child a disservice with with, with their protection. You know they 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 didn't protected protected my child. They they alienated me from him. They dismissed my educational rights. Um, which I maintained through the whole time 
Um, so I really am looking for some guidance into helping my child get resolved so he can feel not not that he's not that he's been um vindicated but that he's been heard because they never listened to him he never had a voice even when they asked him to please right. come into court no voice no voice no voice and they are you know they of course are immune to to anything um i think they had an issue with me because i'm educated um I said, you know, I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to do that. Oh, well, that's okay. We don't. Most people that we deal with don't have houses. Okay, so now you're putting me, you're marginalizing me and everybody else, and profiling. Just it was absolute nightmare for us, and we are financially suffering because of it still, and struggling along. But um, we're okay. We're going to be okay. But I am well, going to have a game. voice. Yeah, I'm going to have that's a voice. And, and so, yeah. Never give up the fight. Thank you. So I, you, so I guess my question would be, hearing a a, ta- a tidbit of my story, really, there's just so many little twists and and uh, nuances to it that are just mind-boggling. They would blow your mind. Um, it is a book. Uh, <laughs> um, would you suggest, and when you say don't give up the fight, what would you suggest is my next step? I think you should sit down and have a consultation with a lawyer. Fantastic. Do you know who first told me to um, talk to a lawyer? The social worker that I got when I got my child back. She said, you need to file a lawsuit. She had she had come from a different county and came into my district area, and so I got her, um, and she just she she kind of whew, you could even see her having to fight hard, but she was just appalled. She said, "What I read and what I see are absolutely incongruous. They're just completely different. What I read about you and what I see." have nothing to do, you know, as far as the dispo and all that kind of stuff, have nothing to do. I said, yes, you're right. So, you know, it's like well, being attacked. Well, definitely find a civil rights lawyer that you can sit down and have a consultation with. Okay. And, do, and so it's a civil, I'm looking for a civil rights lawyer? Yes, you are. Because you want to sue a governmental entity and governmental employees. Um, for violating your rights and perhaps even violating your son's rights. So would you promise Correct. me that you will find a, find a good lawyer and sit down and talk to them? Yes, I do promise you that, and I'll be in touch with you. Oh, okay. You're too kind. Thank you very much for your call. Thank you very much. Okay, we're getting uh, short on time this evening, and I'm going to see if Sylvia... Um, on Kaglova can join us. Yes, I am here. Good evening. How are you? Doing well. How about yourself? Pretty good. I had some technical difficulties at the beginning of the show, and I I think they've all been ironed out. I I, I think so too, and I'm glad to hear. So I told the listeners at the beginning of the show that you were going to be talking today about. Um, 
parental alienation. Correct. So tell us about it. What is it and how does it raise its ugly head in, in family law cases? Parental alienation is basically when one of the parents, usually the parent who has custody of the children, takes steps to make the children uh, basically feel more distant than the non-custodial parent and make the children possibly angry at the non-custodial parents, um, encourage the children not to want to interact with, with whoever it is that it doesn't have custody of the children at the time. Can you give us so, an example of that? Uh, yes. For, for example, um, I actually have a couple of cases where we have a pretty strong case for parental alienation. We have, um, in one of my cases, a father who ended up having custody, sole custody of the children for um, for a period of time. And by the time mom came back into the picture, he had had so much time to work on the children's perception of mom that the children didn't even want to spend any time with mom or even talk to her. Um, usually what the custodial parent would do is um, give examples to the children um, of, of what the other parent has done that's been harmful to the marriage and to the children, the other parent would, would complain about, in our case, the mom, and would make the children resent the actions of the mom. And whatever the custodial parent would tell the children doesn't necessarily uh, correspond to reality. It's just kind of a ploy, and sometimes it's a subconscious ploy that the custodial parent does in order to gain the upper hand in a custodial battle. What are some of the reasons why people, why you think people uh, participate in parental alienation against another parent? There's various reasons why why people do that. Um, And like I said, sometimes people do it um, without really meaning to do it. They um, are so upset still with the other parent that they end up involving the children into the marital issues or the relationship issues that have caused the breakdown of the relationship. Um, in some cases, the parents are so set on having so custody of the children that they don't want to even allow the other parent to see the children. So they try to use the children kind of as allies in winning the custodial battle, which doesn't usually work. If you represented a person who is being alienated by the other person, what advice would you give them? I'm sorry, your question wasn't quite clear. You woke up, so can you please repeat it again? Sure. If you represented a person who was being alienated by another parent, what advice would you give them? In cases like this, it really is helpful for the non-custodial parent whose children are being alienated to keep precise notes of what's going on and keep a log of everything they've done in order to ensure that 
um, visitation takes place, that they are trying really hard to have a relationship with the children. Uh, if that usually by itself isn't enough, usually the court needs to get involved. And the court would most of the time want to hear evidence from as many sources as possible. So in our situation, we've had a 7.30 evaluation where we had to have a neutral, independent therapist who is skilled in dealing with issues to do with parental alienation and sustenance visitation issues. We had the therapist evaluate the parties and the children and kind of present a report to the court as to what the, per, uh, the therapist observed and believed was going on. The therapist then gave a recommendation. And in most of those parental alienation cases, the parties end up having to do some sort of therapy. And the children have to do therapy as well, usually. Most commonly, they end up doing reunification therapy between the children and the parent who's being alienated in order to resolve some of those issues that have now become real in the children's minds. That's kind of basically the the way these kind of cases go in general. Would you recommend a, a client who's being alienated against to uh, participate in a 730? And what is a 730 evaluation? Um, I, I would recommend participation in an evaluation, whether it be a 730 evaluation or a parenting plan assessment, because then that parent ideally would have a second voice that's independent that will kind of repeat the same thing to the court um, and, and advise the court that, yes, indeed, there is parental alienation going on, and it's not just one parent making up reasons and excuses as to why the relationship with the children isn't going well. A 730 evaluation is an evaluation pursuant to Family Code Section 730, and it basically is an evaluation of the parties and the children and possibly some other close relatives and friends who are involved with the children's lives. Um, the therapist, um, usually a licensed psychologist, um, would do home studies of the parties and the children. Um, they, the therapist would also do psychological testing of the parties and then come up with an analysis and a recommendation to the court of really what's going on in the case and what would be the best um, plan of action for the children. We, and in a 7.30 evaluation, one of the parties or both of the parties have to pay the fees to the evaluator. They're not compensated by the court because they're a private entity. On the other hand, in a parenting plan assessment, um, the parties do have the option of possibly having the evaluation fees paid by, um, by the county and, and or waived by the court, depending on the party's financial circumstances. A parenting plan assessment is a really, really concise and limited evaluation. It would last uh, from one day, usually about a half a day, to one and a half days. Um, and it's ordered by the court and it's performed at the courthouse by a court-appointed evaluator. The evaluators are trained 
in performing such evaluations and speaking to the children and, again, getting hopefully to the truth, but they're not necessarily psychologists um, or licensed therapists. Um, and as I said, they are um, they're going to be appointed by the court and be done at the courthouse. Um, the fees are much, much lower than the fees would be for a 730 evaluation, but, of course, the scope of the evaluation as well is much narrower than a 730 evaluation. Who, uh, how do I get, you know, if I want a 730 in my case, and I know that the mother doesn't want a 730, um, how do I get her to, to participate in the 730 evaluation? So if, if both par parents are not in agreement that a 730 evaluation is necessary, the only way to get one done is to request it from the court. You would have to file a request for order and explain to the court why a 730 evaluation is in the best interest of the children. Only after the court has heard the arguments and possible testimony from both sides, usually, would the court then make orders um, to have the 730 evaluation if the court believes that it is necessary as well. And in most cases, in my experience at least, um, when one party requests a 730 evaluation, the court grants it because uh, before the parties get to a point where they are requesting a 730 evaluation, usually there has been a lot of parental conflict that has been affecting the children. And so the court does want to hear from a third neutral party that really has no stake in the matter other than representing to the court what the best interest of the children would be. Okay. Are, are 730s usually granted by judges? Usually they are, um, especially if we have a parent that is adamant um, that, that something wrong is, is going on and there's wrongful conduct by the other parents. Um, Usually, a 730 evaluation is done where the par when the parties are really um, at odds with each other and the court is hard-pressed in seeing where the truth lies. So, in order for the court to get a little more help and additional information from a party that is able to spend, for example, 40 hours with the parties versus the court being able to spend, um, let's say, 40 minutes listening to testimony, from the parties, the court usually would grant it because it helps the court come up with a decision as well and get information that the court would normally not have access to. How much does something, how much do these 730s usually cost? They can range um, from maybe $5,000 per evaluation to upwards of $25,000 per evaluation depending on the issues in the case, um, the evaluator that the parties select, and, um, and just how much information and documentation the parties want to present to the evaluator. Most evaluators, they charge um, at a rate, the lowest I've seen is probably $150 per hour, and those are far and few in between to, um, to upwards of $500 an hour for those evaluations. Now, uh, you and I are working on a case where the evaluation reached 50, over $50,000. Yes, 
Correct. So, so they can be really, really pricey. But on average, you know, for the average family, it's usually about a five thousand dollar cost, and and even that's expensive. Though, wouldn't you agree? Oh, I absolutely would agree. Um, it's actually lately the lowest I've seen anyone pay for an evaluation has been five thousand, um, and for at least for my clients they have ended up being at about a median amount of 7500 So it makes it really difficult for a lot of people to, to be able to, to get that help and get that evidence before the court because it's just so financially prohibitive. I see. But, but I see. in that case, of course, I'm sorry to cut you off, in that case you could request that the court order a parenting plan assessment. But as I said, it, the parenting plan assessment has its limitations, and usually a parenting plan assessment would not be done for another six, seven, or eight months. So the, the time limits are quite different than if you were to choose your own private evaluator who would be able to get on the case immediately. I see. Is it important on who is picked as the evaluator? Absolutely, it is important. Um, generally, evaluators are supposed to be completely neutral and um, unbiased. And most of them are. They're completely professional, um, just want to do their job, want to make sure that they get enough information to make a determination as to what will be in the best interest of the children. Um, however, there are some evaluators that uh, might end up being biased for or against one party, uh, be it on the basis of gender or race or really just who the custodial parent is. So it's really important for parties to do their research before they decide on who the evaluator in their case would be. Okay. Are there uh, some evaluators that are more pro-father and some that are more pro-mother? Have you experienced that? There are. Usually um, usually they are pretty good at staying unbiased. However, there are certain evaluators out there, um, and I I wouldn't (laughs) name any of them, but there are people who I wouldn't recommend to my clients uh, because I know that they would be biased for the other parents. For example, the mom, is, if, if I'm representing the dad. Um, on the other hand, if you know that somebody is going to be pro-mother and you represent the mother, you certainly want to go with that person. <laughs> so so it's kind of a, a matter of choice and it's a matter of doing a little bit of research and 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 kind of doing your homework before you decide who you want to choose. So I'm going to take one one more call before we uh, sign off. Great. Hello, you're on with uh, Attorney Vincent Davis and Shrevea Ankova, Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. Uh, Hi, Vincent. Hello. Did you have a did you have a story to share or a question? Yes, yes. I got, I'm concerned about my youngest 
child. I got your email tonight that was talking about parental alienation, and uh, I, I've never heard of that term, but I'm going through a divorce, and I think that's what's going on with my child. Um, I, I clicked on the link, and I looked at some of the symptoms about parental alienation, and it seems like the parents are a big contributing factor to parental alienation, and then the, the child just seems to be the one that's acting out from all of this. Um, I don't think that I'm I'm doing anything that would cause my child to be so angry and hostile, but it sounds like it's parental alienation. I mean, what what should I do to try to explore that issue further and and figure out if it actually is parental alienation? You probably should sit down. You should sit down with an experienced family law and divorce attorney and discuss these issues so that he or she can make a, um, a professional and experienced uh, determination about whether alienation is going on or not. I'm going to have to sign okay. off right now. Um, we only have a few moments. Uh, please tune in next week for our show at Monday. Wednesday at 7 p.m. I would like to remind our uh, listeners that I have two free uh, divorce ebooks that you can uh, download at our uh, website, CaliforniaDivorceAttorney.co. That's correct, .co, not .com. And remember, we offer services where we can represent you in a family law or a divorce matter with full representation limited scope where we you only hire us to do certain things in your case. And we also do a strategic case analysis where we meet and review, review all of your documents and your minute orders and uh, we make we draw up a strategic memo which you, you can use uh, on your own as self-represented or you can go over with your current attorney, sort of a second opinion. Again, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week on the radio, Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show.